0: Workplace health programs, are they a thing? Is there a business case for them? Well, stick around today because there is a very strong business case for that. Uh, We'll even have some statistics for you. And toward the end of our episode, we will tell you about an incredible resource on how you can actually um, gear up and put in place your own workplace health program. Well being, leading a thriving, generative, and conscious workplace culture with Daryl Brown and Lena Mberku.
1: So today we have the pleasure of um, welcoming Philip Wolf to uh, our podcast. Philip is a workplace health architect. I absolutely adore this title, and uh, he's also the managing director of Kinex and uh, and a speaker. Um, so, Philip, I would love to hear first what are your favorite topics to speak about when you speak.
2: Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, my favorite topics to speak on health. I mean. Uh, Whilst it's such a broad term, it just, it makes me excited. It's what I'm interested in. It's something I find incredibly worthwhile, something that's always been a massive part of my life. And I I love to explore all aspects of it, um, delving a lot more into mental health, uh, mindset, resilience these days. But uh, any aspect of health, I could literally just sit and talk to, talk about with people for... For days on end there's uh, there's nothing about the topic that I that I find disinteresting even or especially when we get conflicting opinions
0: so uh, t- tell us then uh, why why that particular um, interest in health was there something that kind of brought you into it or uh, yeah how, where did that come from I don't actually
2: know I just know that my entire life I've always been and wanted to be healthy I think um, it may have come from when I was younger. My, my father was a professional rugby league player um, and then later a uh, um, PDHBE teacher so, and a, a very learned man. So in our household, there was always a lot of information. There was always a lot of emphasis placed on health. So I think that sort of drew me to it. And I, I saw the benefits of eating well and exercising a lot at a very, very young age, I, I saw the, the linear relationship between my input and my output. Um, I always liked competing. I loved football, athletics, swimming, and I knew that I figured out early my training input uh, would make me a better athlete. So I think it just stemmed from that. And then it was a natural progression for me to, um, to go through and, and study physiology which is what I did at university, um, which I loved. I absolutely loved. And then going out into the world as a, as a physiologist, um, I started off in uh, rehabilitation and, um, and elite conditioning, which was excellent. But then I, I kind of fell into workplace health and just found that fascinating. I think it's still we still haven't really scratched the surface of workplace health, although the market is growing exponentially we still have so much to uncover so it's um it's such an interesting topic and one that i'm really looking forward to sort of diving into deeper as my career progresses i guess
1: Mm. i saw on your linkedin that uh, you've been um, designing programs for uh, people in gold mines in papua new guinea could you could you tell us about that
2: yeah that was um that was a few years ago now. About three years ago, uh, I was working for a smaller, a smaller company, travelling all across Australia, um, mostly in mines and engineering, uh, in blue collar work. And then we we got this contract over in Papua New Guinea for a gold mine, Newcrest Gold, uh, and I jumped at the chance because essentially it was designing and delivering a, a multi million dollar program for. Six thousand plus workers, um, the majority of whom were Papua New Guinean locals, uh, with some expat Australians and people from all over the world. So it just seemed like the most fascinating thing I could think of uh, in one of the most challenging environments. And that that did prove to be one of the most challenging uh, times of my career, but it really helped my development and progression, just in terms of what to what to design for different subsets of people different uh, health issues different uh, occupations from management all the way down to um, to manual laborers it was it was fascinating and i think it really shaped me as a as a specialist as a workplace health architect and yeah really really progressed my career it was after that that i decided to open my own uh, my own business because it really gave me the confidence that I, I actually did know what I was talking about. I guess.
0: Mm. So were there um, particular things like if we painted a picture of the Papua New Guinea experience? Um, if what, are there some details you can give us or some of the unique facets that that were in that kind of environment?
2: Yes, um, diet is ninety percent of the problem. Um, there were, there were also um, quite a few alcohol-related problems, but that's not, um, that's not unique to the Papua New Guinean uh, culture. That's essentially uh, fly-in, fly-out mine, mine culture. Uh, I'm, of course, generalizing, but that's more often than not, we do see alcohol as a predominant issue. But the main problem that we saw was when you take a, a group of people who are so used to living off the land when they're at home in their village, they'll eat um, tubers and sweet potato and things they can grow in the garden or things they can catch. When they come to the mine, it was the food was sufficient and it was good. But there's a lot of sugar, a lot of fat, a lot of processed stuff. White mm. bread would make up about 50% of the diet. Rice mm. would make up a huge component. Um, the guys were drinking cordial with. It was mixed three parts cordial with a tiny dash of water. Like just introducing Gosh. this processed Western diet to people who are not conditioned to it was creating enormous problems. So the the diabetes rate was unknown when we went there because many of the locals had not actually been tested uh, or been to the doctor, some of them at all in their lives. So when we did start testing for it, the diabetes rate was through the roof. Um, in the people that we tested, which was pretty much everyone, we were seeing rates of uh, one in five or more who were pre-diabetic or diabetic, which is far above uh, what the, the national average is supposed to be. So that was one of the main issues. Gout as well, which we know is has a very large uh, dietary component. It's, yeah, I would say diet would have been 90 percent of the issue. Uh, and as well, the mindset, coming from a culture where the larger you are, the more important you are. Oh. Uh, so typically, if you're, if you're round, if you have a big belly, it means that you don't have to work physically as much as other people do. You you have a lot of power and people can bring you food without you having to work too hard for it. So when these, these guys got the chance to, to gorge themselves and, and get big bellies, they'd go home with a, a sort of a stature that they didn't have before. Um, which, yeah, as you
0: can imagine, was really feeding into the issue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with that then, uh, the in terms of the outcomes that you were able to deliver, can you kind of talk into that, like the before and the after, or uh, no doubt it was an ongoing process for them, but what can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so in terms of outcomes over the year and a half, um, it was... It was quite massive. Um, we saw a very sharp decline in particularly pre-diabetic patients. Um, we saw over two tons of weight lost across the site. Uh, we had, I think by the time I left, we had 85% of people engaged in the program, which is uh, which is enormous, particularly over that volume of people. Um, and everyone, sort of adopted this culture of health. And from what I understand, it's continuing. Uh, There's a, there's a great guy on the project at the moment, Brett Sparnan, who I've worked with previously. He's just taken it and taken the program to new heights, which is great to hear. And that success continues, but it's, I think that was always our goal to create a culture of health. And I think that should be the goal and sort of the guiding light through, through any workplace program. If you can create a culture of health, Amongst the company, amongst the staff, amongst the leadership, then essentially you can you can achieve anything that's that's always our goal
1: mm. and what would you say are the main levers or the main ingredients to create the change that you want to see like how do you convince the skeptics or the cynics um, of the necessity to change?
2: yeah, what a question mm. <laughs> well there's essentially seven and a half billion different ways to convince people to be healthier. Um, But there are certainly some templates that we can use. And in terms of workplace programs, the number one thing we have to get is commitment from the top down. If we have commitment from CEO, GM, CFO, and very importantly, the supervisors who are in charge of, um, of rostering and of letting people go and access these programs, If we can get buy-in from them, then everything else just becomes so much simpler. I was in a session yesterday where someone asked me, how important is it to get buy-in from the top? Because they were seeing their program, which started out really, really strong. It sort of started petering out. They said, do you actually need that? And in my experience, if you don't have that, your program will start to peter out. It will start to fail. No matter how much the people want it, if the higher-ups aren't engaging and they're not encouraging, it'll lose steam. You'll, you'll lose the people, you'll lose participation, and your program will start to give you diminishing returns. So in terms of, in terms of a catalyst, in terms of a lever, in terms of um, progression, you need that buy-in from the top. If you don't have it, your program can't work. If you do mm. have it, you can achieve literally anything with it.
1: But then it sounds a bit like the growl that everybody wants to get, like it's uh, this leadership buy-in. But uh, would, you, would you suggest any ways to actually get it?
2: Yes. Yeah, so creating the business case for it is always where we start. Um, yep. Everyone up to, well, it's changing now, but up to now, people have seen workplace health programs as a nice to have.
1: Yep. They see If we initiate
2: this, our workers will like us more, staff morale will go up. So that might bleed through into the rest of our processes, but that's not the case. And we know that's not the case through doing the research and the experience. We know that there is literally a financial business case to be made for it in terms of uh, reduced absenteeism, increased productivity, reduced turnover, um, decreased workers' compensation risk and time spent away from work we know that workplace health programs if run correctly will save money and they will make money and that is a measurable statistic that we can actually point to so when we frame it in that way and we say the average health program will give you three to four to five to six dollars roi per dollar spent that tends to get a little bit more interest and that tends to get these things across the line and as any business leader would know if they don't engage with the new system that they're implementing it can't work it will fail so if we tell them that we're going to give them four dollars per dollar they spend as long as they buy in that tends to get it across the line but yeah to answer your question we absolutely have to make the business case for it because just saying it's a great and ethical thing to do and a socially responsible thing to do Mm unfortunately is not enough. Of course it is. It is socially responsible and it is ethical and it is great, but we need to show in dollar figures how it's going to benefit the business in order to get it across the line.
0: And this is a, it, it, like there's obviously the ROI thing, but, but but it's a kind of a change in the way businesses have operated in a way, isn't it? Because, and we've talked about this in our podcast before, but, um, in many ways there was that we used to have this kind of defined line between work and home life and what you put in your mouth is your business kind of thing or the exercise that you do is got, got that's got nothing to do with us but there's a part now that seems to be a kind of a change in that approach how would how would you, what what's your observation of that and How's how's the playing field kind of changed in that kind of area?
2: Yeah, it's because we're so incredibly connected now. I mean, it obviously has its advantages, but it certainly has mm. its advantages as well. And we have careers now. Everyone has a career and everyone is a type of person based on the work they do. It's so mm. wrapped up in our identity that it's very difficult to separate that now. We're not clocking in at nine and clocking out at five and then doing whatever we want. We're answering emails at night. We're taking phone calls in the morning because we're dealing with global clients. It's, it really bleeds through into every aspect of our life and our identity. So what we're seeing now, and in my opinion, workplaces are one of the main reasons we get a lot of the health issues that we do. So they're the absolute best place. They're the front lines of healthcare and this this extends beyond each individual workplace into the economy as a whole. If we can mm. treat people at the source of where they get most of their issues, then that's the ultimate in preventative care. So sending people to specialists and doctors after they're sick, we know that that's not economically viable, it's, it's an incredibly inefficient way of doing things. If we can prevent these issues or we can treat them before they become very serious issues, then we save so much time, so much money, so much grief. And workplaces are the absolute place to do that. So it makes business sense for each workplace to have a health program, but it also makes Mm. broader economic sense for this sort of thing to be, I don't know if legislated is the right term, but mandated potentially or encouraged subsidized uh, by governing bodies because the the potential cost savings are absolutely enormous down the line so yeah we get our problems there we should be fixing them at the source which is work
1: can i can i ask what is it that you're trying to achieve with kinex that makes it different from other health uh, service providers
2: this might be um a little bit controversial and I do get in trouble for saying it sometimes oh. but <laughs> <laughs> um, despite all that I've said I think that the wellness industry and in particular the workplace wellness industry is overinflated. I think it's bloated I think it's inefficient um, there are a lot of providers in the market at the moment and quite frankly we don't need them we need to be able to train workplaces and leaders in workplaces to look for, to identify and to design health programs within their own companies. The the cost savings in that and the benefits down the line are enormous. So my goal and the goal of my company is to dramatically reduce the need for workplace wellness, for the workplace wellness industry as a whole. And the way we're doing that is by educating people, by showing people the processes, showing them how to, essentially showing them how to fish rather than selling them a bag of fish every week. That's, nice. that's our goal to reduce drastically the workplace health industry. And then we'll be left with the best providers and the providers that people actually need, not yeah, the inefficient processes mm. that we have now.
1: And what would you say makes somebody a great provider or above the the rest?
2: I think what makes a great provider is that they deliver value in the way that they can can transfer their knowledge. It's not just eking out little bits of knowledge and saying, this is what to do now, this is what to do now. It's showing people how to actually do that for themselves. If you can enter a company and after a year and a half they don't need us anymore because their wellness program is going so well that is absolutely ideal that's i mean it may not be the best business model but that's not something that we care about too much we want to provide value we want to make make the world better make the world healthier and i see that this is a real vehicle for that so a a great provider transfers their knowledge and transfers their value so that someone can do what they're doing uh, for themselves.
1: That's very inspiring. Thank you.
2: Yeah,
0: that's brilliant.
1: So, so tell us, um, if in an
0: ideal world, uh, in an organization, what does, how has their culture changed? What are they doing differently? What are they doing? Um, well that that makes them you know, you know um, makes their health program uh, effective do you know what i mean so what does this company look like that's integrated health into their whole culture
2: yeah it's it goes back to creating that culture of health so at every turning point you ask yourself does this create a culture of health is this feeding into our employee wellbeing and it might sound like a, like a bit of a woo woo question to ask yourself all the time but if everyone's healthy and everyone's everyone's energy is managed they're mentally fit they're physically fit work output increases dramatically Um, absenteeism is non-existent Uh, workers compensation cases just don't happen and people don't leave companies like that we know turnover i think i saw the average the other day it's 18 percent in a lot of industries um 10 average across all and if uh, if it's costing between 75 and 150 percent to turn over one worker that's an enormous enormous cost that's millions of dollars in a medium-sized company so at every point asking yourself does this create a culture of health are our work practices draining health or are they adding to the health of our employees uh the initiatives that we run the way we structure our meetings is this healthy for our people or is this unhealthy for our people always if the answer is this is healthy the the work up front may be more and the effort may be more and the expense up front may be more but the savings and the benefits down the line will always be improved always
0: okay i'm going to just go again a little bit deeper what what are some of the what are some examples then that you can, that perhaps that you've rolled out through various um, workplace cultures of what healthy work practices practices look like.
2: Yep. Yeah, good point. So I think in terms of work practices, everyone is so incredibly different and we're seeing that now more than ever. Um, a lot of the people that we consult with, some are over the moon that they're working from home and some cannot wait to get back to the office. Others are a mixture of the two. So what we've seen is that different people work in different ways. So one work practice template won't necessarily work or can't possibly work across everyone. So in some of the healthiest workplaces that we're in, the companies understand that and they allow their workers to create their own uh, their own schedules, their own time. Some people, such as myself, um, who work much, much better in the morning. So between the hours of 5.30 and 12 o'clock, I'm very switched on. Uh, After 12 o'clock, a little bit less so. uh, And towards the evening, I'm I'm usually useless. Other people are completely the other way around. So by forcing everyone into the same time shift in the same paradigm, we're essentially robbing people of their most effective work hours and forcing them to conform to, to what we think or what the standard is. So Knowing, knowing your people, and knowing that result and output is far more important than your perceived uh, your perceived notion of what their input should be. I think is one of the best and healthiest work practices you can have. Um, in addition to that, rewarding people with healthy things um, instead of wine and chocolates for a job well done. It might be uh, a massage, or it might be. Uh, 12 week pass to, to yoga lessons or whatever the case may be. Still instilling that culture of health.
1: So how do you imagine the workplaces of the future to look like in terms of health and well-being? What's the, what's the, what's your like wildest vision?
2: Um, what I'd love to see is for health and safety to be separated um, at the moment. It's, it's one role. It's work health and safety coordinator, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think whilst they're very closely tied together, they are separate things. And we're, we're starting to see it now that a lot of the large companies will actually have a chief wellness officer, a CWO. That's a, that's a role that's growing uh, very, very quickly at the moment. And a lot of companies, what they're doing is getting a chief wellness officer as a collective. Say they're not big enough to have one, in their own company, they can share it with other similar sized companies. Um, That would be primarily the place to start, having a CWO, someone who's in charge of health. And then essentially, not only giving people the the vehicles to improve their health, but the encouragement to do so. I think Mm. if everyone does view the workplace as where we can prevent these health issues, then I think we'll see a massive, massive shift. Um, every single workplace is different. I've never designed two, workplace, two programs the same. Sometimes they're miles and miles apart, so it's difficult to give a blanket answer. But by by getting people to buy into the fact that workplaces are the front lines of healthcare, I think that's that's everything. Everything just flows straight from that.
0: Mm. there's probably some other things we could say about like uh, there's, there's the healthy mind there's the healthy body and um, uh, one, of, one of the because you're focusing perhaps uh, uh, I might be putting words in your mouth here but um, more around body fitness how does, how does that what's the direct relationship between you know the, the physical health? And then you kind of, how you show up in a workplace, how, how, would you, how would you talk to that?
2: Health, essentially, when we think about it, how physical health translates to how you show up at work, first of all is the absence of sickness. We know that people with, for example, uh, three or more risk factors for chronic illness take up to eight to nine times more sick leave than people with one or fewer. Um, so first of all, it's the absence of sickness, essentially creating more time at work. Then when you're actually at work, anyone can speak to this. When you're fit, when you're healthy, you are more mentally switched on. Uh, you have more energy, you, you're more productive. It's like a, like a race car driver. Uh, they're sitting in a car, essentially just concentrating very, very little physical output, yet they're some of the most finely tuned athletes in the world, essentially because their physical fatigue feeds into mental fatigue. And the fitter they are, the fitter and stronger, and uh, the better endurance they have, the better they can concentrate, the more mental output they're able to have. So first of all, absence of disease, so we're not taking sickly. Second of all, being above average fitness so that we can increase our mental output.
1: I'm curious, um, in your programs when you see people who don't necessarily want to participate or who look a bit disengaged or even reluctant to to, to turn up to some of the activities that you are offering, like what, what do you usually do when that happens?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one, you will never get everyone or in my experience we've never gotten every single person we've come close in a lot of organizations but there is always people who won't do it and what we see there's typically four groups we'll see the early adopters who are mm. typically the ones who don't need uh, the intervention and badly as some of the others because they're they're the health freaks. they're uh, the people who are out riding to work every morning and having their mm. green smoothies and they practice yoga and they meditate, all the rest of it, and they jump at the chance. They can't wait to get on board. Then we have the people who see the value in it and kind of limp into it. Um, They're influenced by the early adopters, being so energetic and and enthusiastic about it. Then we have the people who wait and see, who sit back and it might take them six months. Uh, It could be because of uh, procrastination, could be apathy, could be Um, a little bit of distrust around how health data is recorded and whether the company's just doing this to to get rid of them, which we see a lot of. In blue-collar jobs, we see a lot of that. People are very, very apprehensive about giving their health data because they think it's going to be a vehicle for people to get fired, which it absolutely is not. It's all confidential. Uh, And the final group are the people who openly distrust and dislike health for whatever reason. Um, That group are really, really hard to crack. Some of them do come over after a year, year and a half, two years. Uh, But some, for whatever reason, through their own experience, just openly dislike it and they they won't come on board. Um, I think the best way, in my experience, the best way to get people over is to deliver consistent value and be trustworthy opening communication, trustworthy, and delivering value is how you will get people across the line in almost anything, not just in health programs. Once Mm. they see that you're actually there to help, your job is to make them better. And that's your intention. And that's your entire entire outlook. Mm. They tend to come across. And if they don't come across after seeing that, they're never going to.
0: It's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I think if a company also takes that approach with their employees we're um we're going to see a lot healthier companies and i'm not just talking about physically healthier but you know where we have you know maybe there's a contract between the the company and the employee and it's okay well i've done my bit says the company now you give me my stuff so it's kind of a can be a very selfish way but but to see that we have now and i suppose this is what we're seeing as we have companies adopting these um, these wellness programs and these health programs. We're seeing companies turning over and actually looking genuinely to to be benefactors of their staff, to look at the well-being of their um, yeah their stakeholders in that way. Uh, and that's kind of a it's a good thing to see in the world, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you're right, that does create healthier companies. You know, if the workers are looked after, they'll work harder. Not only that, if people know that a company is looking after their workers, they tend to, they place more trust in that company because that company is deserving of it. So it extends to the community, it extends to the market, extends to staff, uh, to customers everyone benefits when companies approach it in that way and exactly what you said uh, i think in the past companies have looked at as a transactional sort of relationship we give you money so you must give us all of this that's that's not really flying anymore people want and need something more than financial compensation they want to feel like they have a purpose like they're part of something like they there's a reason for them doing doing what they're doing and contributing to something. So I think when we look at it in, in terms of that, everything improves.
0: Look, there's um, this stuff that you're doing right now and you're putting it out into the world. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. You were talking about the free program that you're um, you're running at the moment.
2: Yes. um, And this goes back to my, my mission, uh, my company's, our entire outlook is to shrink the wellness industry uh, or to maybe that's the wrong term, to refine it, um, to make it more efficient, more effective. So what we've done is we've put together uh, an eight part series that kicks off uh, Wednesday, October 7th at 7.30. Um, It's an eight part series, 20 to 30 minutes a week. That's going to essentially give away the The blueprint for creating workplace health programs Now, right we've been yeah we've been questioned about why we're actually doing this, because this is our IP that we've we've created over years, but I think the market is enormous every single company in the world should have a health program. Um, So by giving this away, we're helping companies as a whole, and I think we're helping the world as a whole by doing this Um, some parts companies will still need practitioners for, uh, which hopefully means us. If it doesn't, that's even better because it means that they can run it eff- effectively and efficiently on their own. So that's what we're doing. It's called the Workplace Wellness Blueprint. Um, and uh, I'm really, really excited about it. Episode one, we talk about creating business case, exactly how to create a business case for workplace health to get it across the line and then we we'll go into how to plan for it, how to design it, uh, how to implement it, everything, step-by-step step, at the end of it, people will essentially know
0: how to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> You'll give them a, yes. a bit nice certificate. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically.
2: I mean, it'll still probably take about 12 years of, uh, of hands-on experience to get to to get to where I am at the moment, but they'll have the the bare bones and a step-by-step program plan of how to actually do it in their own company, which, yeah, I'm really excited to give.
1: That's really inspiring. We're getting close to uh, wrapping up. So um, I'd love you to, while you are on your soapbox with your microphone in your hand, to see if you have any closing remarks and also if you could tell uh, our listeners how to stay in touch with you
2: I think, I I have mentioned it a few times, I think the goal for all of us should be to try and create a culture of health in the companies that we're in. If we can do that, and if we can give people something to care about in the places that they spend so much of their time, it's not only gonna make them feel better, it's gonna make them more effective and more efficient workers. Everybody wins in that scenario. So not looking at our relationships as so transactional, looking at them as a as a give and take having more empathy and communication i think creates something that that people can be a proud can be proud to to be a part of um, in terms of how to stay in touch with me people can find me on linkedin um Phillip wolf or they can find me at connects health k-i-n-e-x health or phil at connectshealth.com.au um, I'm always happy to, to answer questions always happy to come on programs like this um, i essentially want to bring as much value to this industry and to the world as i can because i think it's um it's something worthwhile that i can be proud of
0: awesome. i love your
1: work thank yeah. you
0: brilliant well thank you very much for it it's been awesome having you on and um that's really added to this conversation that we you know we we enjoy bringing around how we can, you know, go beyond just well-being at work and just um, yeah up the conversation a bit, that's good thank you.
2: Excellent, yeah thanks so much for having me
0: You've been listening to Beyond Well-Being with Daryl Brown and Lena Mberku Yes, I do recommend that you check out Phil's webinar series um, and we'll put the link to that also in our little blurb might have seen it below where we're posting this on LinkedIn. And you can check out um, Phil uh, on LinkedIn or via his website, connectshealth.com.au. Right. And of course, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, Lena, you can find her at macroleaders.com.au, also on LinkedIn. Daryl Brown at upside down leader, upside down leader.com. And also on LinkedIn. See you next week.